Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and for more than 10 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today's episode is part of a series we're recording for the ECRI and the ISMP Patient Safety Organization's Deep Dive Report. This year's Deep Dive focuses on issues of racial and ethnic disparities in care, and we're talking to PSO members and others to hear about their initiatives to fight these disparities. Our first guest is from Parkland Health and Hospital System, one of the country's largest and most progressive safety net hospitals. Hello, my name is Brett Moran. I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Information Officer at Parkland. I'm also a uh, Associate Chief Medical Officer and, and I'm over all things clinical informatics. Our second guest is from Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation, a leading nonprofit data science, artificial intelligence and innovation organization affiliated with Parkland Health and Hospital System. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, Steve Meff. I am the president and CEO at PCCI, the Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation. So, Dr. Moran, I mentioned that Parkland is in you know, Dallas, the Dallas area. Can you tell us a little bit more about the health system and, and the community that you serve? Yeah, sure. So Parkland is uh, one of the last remaining uh, county safety net hospitals. We were founded in 1894. We have or licensed for about 880 beds. And um, we, we serve the patients of the, the county. We have a, a lot of uh, charity care. Over 33% of our patients uh, that present have charity. Another 29% are Medicaid and another 18% are Medicare. Uh, we uh, have some interesting facts. One in four physicians practicing in Dallas today trained at Parkland, and one in every 250 babies born in Texas were born at Parkland. That really speaks to impact, right? To have that that proportion of the of the physicians in the county, right, to have been gone through Parkland. That that's a huge Absolutely. reach, yeah. Um, and then, Dr. Miff, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what PCCI does, and and particularly? Um, we want to get into a little bit the community health needs assessment uh, efforts. Absolutely. Um, PCCI is a set up as a nonprofit. Uh, the core of it, we are a data science and social determinants of health innovation hub, um, as mentioned, affiliated with Parkland. And our main focus is on bringing together clinical information with information about somebody's life and applying advanced data science methods to better understand an individual and focusing our work on this innovation in the digital health technology in advanced analytics to drive health equity. And we're focusing on how do we optimize access using these analytics for vulnerable populations. So at the core of it, we're trying to use data to better understand an individual, uh, understand not only their clinical needs, but their life and trying to do that at scale and tee that up for frontline staff and for individuals themselves so that care can be done in a proactive way, in a way that's uh, all encompassing. So Dr. Moran, you know, we're recording this in early 2022, kind of the very end of February. Um, and we've been at this pandemic thing now for coming up on two years. Um, can you take us back to the beginning of that, to, to you know, the winter, early spring of 2020? 
What was the experience yeah. at Parkland at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny trying to think about it now because it feels like it was so long ago. But you know, I don't have to describe when the first cases were were described in Wuhan, China, in December of 2019. But the minute that happened, and certainly um, by January, we were having conversations about this. And by late February of 2020, Parkland had declared a, its own official disaster. And uh, by the beginning of March, we had created our own COVID command center. We did not have our first cases till the middle of March. And, and from then, uh, things were really uh, rapid paced. We, we had our COVID command center. We started working with Steve's team, creating a, a dashboard for COVID and also trying to scramble to create some predictive analytics about you know, what's gonna happen with COVID. How big is the wave gonna be? Can we even handle that? Um, but we also did a lot of interesting things. We were one of the first healthcare organizations in the country to create a discrete tactical care unit for managing uh, COVID cases within a complete uh, ice, negative air pressure isolation unit. And uh, we scrambled to create these Frankenstein, we call them Molly machines that were basically uh, webcams on wheels that would plug into the LAN port and we would put them in patient rooms and it would allow us to pan and tilt and have conversations with patients and monitor them without people having to go into the rooms. And we created dozens of those for the hospital. We started having multidisciplinary concurrent virtual rounding uh, in the ICUs. And so the ICU team and then the nurse would have all of these specialists uh, remote and uh, virtual, have a Zoom meeting and sit there at the same time and do rounding virtually on a patient. And that was something that they hadn't done before and they really loved it. And they've actually continued that habit uh, since then. We stood up drive-through testing. We had massive expansion of virtual visits, just like everybody else, over a 900% increase. And then we began uh, doing a lot of collaborations with Steve and his team, as I said, with the COVID predictions. And then we started working with the uh, county health department doing semi-automated contact tracing. We set up a solution for them. And then we started trying to, to figure out what are some other things we can do to try to help. Can you tell me a little bit more about those predictive analytics and you know what were you if you can, without going, you know, too, too deep, but, you know, what were you trying to take in and consume? And then what were you trying to do with that to, to spit back out to assess, you know, were we assessing the risk of individual patients, of populations? What was sort of the, the goal there? Yeah, the, the, what we were trying to, to assess was for, for the predictive analytics, the beginning of the predictive analytics was how big was the wave going to be of patients coming in with COVID to Parkland? And was that something that we would have enough hospital beds or ICU beds to handle? And and it was unfortunate at the time, and probably even now still, is that there is not a great single point of information to go in this country to say, help me figure out how, how my health system can withstand this next wave, the Omicron, the Delta. And, and so we had to figure it out ourselves, and, and Steve and his team helped us with that. And, and we, you know, we used best practices. We used what some other health systems were doing. We did a lot of, uh, let's find someone that looks like us that's a few weeks ahead of us and let's see what they're doing. Uh, and, and that was how we did it. And then you know, after we had gotten those predictions, it was a little bit of wait and watch and hope and pray that it doesn't get to be really ugly and that we're right or that we overestimated it. But it was during that time that we then started saying, well, what else can we do? What are some other things that we can do? using some, some of the tools we have to help the health system. And so we started saying, well, what about, um, can we help identify patients who maybe have COVID that are, that are 
maybe spreading it to others unknowingly and maybe we can identify them ahead of time and so i reached out to, to steve's team and they they said yeah let it let us help and steve's team is really good at geomapping and and um, high level details at the block level of patients and so we started talking and they had a feed of patients who had COVID in the community and at the time this was late march early april they were just a handful of cases and so we said well if someone has COVID and they live within a, a quarter mile of that person, maybe they have been exposed. And so let's let's alert the health system. If that person has an appointment in the next two days and they're coming into the hospital or to the clinic and they've been around someone else with COVID, let's, let's create a system where we can operationalize screening them ahead of time. And so Steve's team created this list. They passed it straight into our EHR, into an in-basket pool that the nurses would then work and we would do direct outreach on the patients. And then obviously a quarter mile was kind of ridiculous and that quickly changed to about a four block radius. And then Steve's team did what they do really well is they created a very sophisticated and very accurate tool for estimating prediction of being in high proximity to someone with COVID. And then uh, Dr. Miff, is that what we talk, we're talking about? When we talk about the proximity index score, is that what, that what we're talking about there? Right, and you know, uh, Paul, right from the beginning, one of the first things that we knew was that proximity mattered, right? We also knew that to, to be able to effectively manage and help, you know, Parkland, the, the county, the community manage this, we need to take a hyper-localized approach to our data. So as Dr. Mona said, from, from even before we saw significant cases in our community, we're able to expand our um, data relationship with the county, um, to be able to get daily feeds of the testing data and to know exactly who is testing positive. And by doing that and uh, taking those cases, those individuals, geomapping them so we knew exactly where they are in the community, we can take other, you know, any individual. Um, in this case, we started with the Parkland patients, uh, as Dr. Mara said, that were scheduled for an appointment within the next two days and dynamically use these analytics to calculate a risk, a proximity COVID risk for themselves. Um, and those that were identified as having high risk because of not only their proximity to positive active cases, but also the density of those cases, um, they will be teed up um, within the electronic medical record for proactive outreach. Uh, our intent was if somebody has a high risk of having been infected, let's not bring them in into an environment where they can spread it to others, but we still wanted to meet their clinical needs and hence uh, the, the transition of those to uh, virtual visits. So that was a very practical way of adjusting uh, at the individual level, and also providing options on what's the best way to care for them. So that was sort of the, the, the start of uh, leveraging uh, a proximity index that relied on these uh, algorithms without needing to actually, you know, directly track somebody's uh, movement themselves or having them download another app. Because what apps were emerging in the marketplace that were really tracking, um, this is where it really gets into sort of the equity component of that is that a lot of the patients that Parkland was serving might not have either the technology or the smartphones to do that, or might not have the, the digital technical knowledge to, to do that or use them effectively. So how do we help them in a way that's less intrusive and it's equitable across the board? 
Well, that points to a limitation of using those apps in that way, right? They rely on every individual participant to take the action. And anytime you've got a gap there, you're gonna have a, a gap in the incoming data and you're gonna have a little bit less complete picture. Yeah. Um, so I, I imagine that once you've got this proximity index and you have started to apply it, that other applications of the index would would make themselves would make themselves clear. Did you find that to be the case? And 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 if so, what types of other uses? Exactly, Paul. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, we had to we deployed this, and and the nurses, you know, PCCI would send in, and it was every three days they'd send in a new batch of people that were, had appointments in the next two days that had a high proximity risk, and then we would call them and we would ask them two you know two questions: Do you have any COVID-like symptoms? Have you been around anyone who has COVID? And so with that first initiative, we then tracked the data, and it was interesting when we asked people if they had COVID-like symptoms who had a high proximity risk identified by PCCI, 18% endorsed those symptoms. When we asked them if they had been near someone, very close to someone who had COVID, those people who had been indicated as high proximity risk, 26% endorsed positive symptoms. And then if we took the people who were flagged as high proximity risk by PCCI and we actually tested them, 24% were positive for COVID. So one in four. So it was actually a very accurate tool and it was very helpful. So for the first initiative, trying to protect um, looking inward, people coming into the health system, we don't want them to spread it to other patients. We don't want them to spread it to other staff. It was highly effective. We screened over 230,000 patients, over 1.2 million encounters. And we found this to be a very useful tool and, and it helped it kind of decrease the spread within our health system. But then as you said, Paul, the question was, what else can we do? And Steve and his team uh, and I met and we said, well, let's look outward and let's look at people who don't have an appointment in the next 30 days, um, but who maybe live in a high risk area, high proximity risk. And then we said, well, we really don't have enough nurses to call because that was over 400,000 people. And, we, and, and so we said, well, let's do two things. Number one, let's automate this. So let's not call them. Let's send them a text message with a link to a survey. So we used an automated survey tool and they would fill that out. So rather than us doing that manually. And then we also said, if a person is young and healthy and has high risk for COVID, they're generally going to do very well. And so the bang for the buck, there's not as much value in screening them, but let's focus on the people that have high vulnerability. And so we again, turned to PCCI and we said, let's, let's try to create a tool that can estimate vulnerability and then let's screen these people and let's not only screen them for risk of COVID, but if they have high risk, let's go ahead and ask them if they have medical needs and we can offer that to them so they don't need to come in. We can get them prescriptions. We can do a virtual visit. And let's also ask them if they have food insecurity because food insecurity was something that was really um, coming out as the biggest social determinant that came out in the pandemic. And there were just millions of people around uh, who were having a lot of food insecurity in the state. And so we would ask them if they needed food, how many people, and we partnered with a food pantry that would deliver them groceries for 14 days, uh, which was enough time to let them clear if they had COVID so they didn't need to go out and get any food. And so that was really, uh, that was kind of the second part of this proximity initiative. But again, it was key on Steve and his team developing this vulnerability risk score. And that, you know, you described, you, you described not, it would be impractical to have nurses actually physically pick up the phone and call every single person you were screening because there's hundreds of thousands. <clears throat> but does that act of, you know, pushing out the outreach and then tacking on to that, uh, as you said, some of these other services that you might be offered, is that one of the ways that this ties into 
you know, fighting inequitable access to care and really reaching out to people who might otherwise not encounter the healthcare system for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly found people, it's kind of silly to say, but people don't like talking to people. <laughs> people, people like texting. And so if we could have a solution that used text and they could use their phone and they could click a link and fill out the survey, we had very good response to that. And, and we had surprisingly high percentage of people that endorsed food insecurity. So it did work and maybe not as well as trying to call people directly, although people don't generally pick up the phones, but it helped when we needed to kind of mass scale this kind of thing. And Paul, what, what I would add is that um, to address um, inequities, it, it's a multi-dimensional effort and it absolutely starts with the type of data and the type of analytics that you use to make sure that you actually look at the whole person, the whole community, and not introduce uh, artificially things that downstream will have an impact. So in, in this case, with the vulnerability uh, analysis in the index, we took multiple metrics and multiple data and brought it together to be able to, again, look comprehensively at an individual. So we knew from the beginning that age uh, was a risk factor. We knew that there were specific medical comorbidities that were associated with high risk of uh, COVID. Uh, and certainly those were important to include. But right at the heels of that, we also uh, intuitively knew from the work that we've been doing in this community for uh, years and years that the ethnic backgrounds the racial components, as well as the information about somebody's life, the things that we call the social determinants of health, likely are a key component that also contribute to that COVID risk. So we, we group those uh, and look at those as factors that do not change rapidly in the short term, but are critical. And then pair those up with two additional factors, one being around mobility. Um, because we knew that the more folks move around, whether it's by necessity or by choice, that would make them and those around them more vulnerable. Um, and we also knew from the first wave that proximity matters, so the, the uh, density of active cases. So, so we took these multiple components uh, together and built this algorithm to be able to identify the vulnerability, both at the individual level and then look across the geography. So the activities and the urgency of those activities were prioritized based on where were the folks that were most vulnerable and also where you had the highest density of cases across that uh, across the community. So whether it's the mobile testing sites or new testing sites that are being stood up, they're done in a way that folks across the community can access them conveniently on their own terms. So that's where I believe that the you know starting with information that takes into account those key elements is so critical because then any action that you start to take downstream, uh, if you don't do it right the front end, it, it's already being biased. Well, and it, it, if I understand right, you know, you touched on um, some of the the sort of activities you were able to help coordinate in the community, but did that then extend to once the vaccine started to become available to advising, for instance, the county on setting up vaccination locations, right? Because there's this whole conversation about, well, we got to get everybody, but we can't do everybody in the first day. So how do we <laughs> how do we distribute that? Was that um, was that sort of contributed there as well? Oh, you, you you're spot on, and you know, it's interesting, right? With with each 
uh, new wave of the pandemic, new challenges were being uh, created. And when vaccines uh, first became available uh, in uh, December of 2020, and then more widely available in January, that was a key component because we had more demand for vaccines initially than we had supply. So a key analytical exercise and then all the, the activities to follow were, okay, so how do we prioritize? Who should get that vaccine first? So one of the other, I think, really great things that occurred across Dallas was the coordination between Parkland, other healthcare providers, the county and the city to create one central registration list. So then you can everybody work off the same list paired that up with, again, the data that we've talked about, and then ongoing with the vaccination data. So we knew on a daily basis who received their vaccine. We needed to take those lists of hundreds of thousands of individuals and prioritize in a way that's most equitable, and we get to the folks that needed the most first. So that's where the sort of the, the two uh, analytics that we historically used on the both vulnerability and the proximity came together and enable us to actually prioritize daily those lists uh, based on those factors that we just talked about and start to send the registration messages and work down the list in that order. So then somebody who could get to the internet first or somebody who could register 20 times did not get prioritized versus somebody that uh, was much more vulnerable from uh, both their ethnic, racial, their social economic, their medical conditions, et cetera. Um, so that, that's something that uh, at the beginning um, we used and in a very effective way to prioritize and get those vaccines to individuals. Yeah, I think Paul, it, as Steve said, we were very intentional. We knew this was coming. We knew that there, and the CDC talked about this, that the first wave, there would be much more demand than there would be vaccinations. And so we wanted to be very intentional about being equitable with the vaccine distribution. And so whereas everybody had to follow the 1B list, which we all did, we prioritized our 1B list based on vulnerability. And those were the first people. And at Parkland, um, we sent them a ticket to schedule and only people with a ticket could schedule their appointment. And we started with the most vulnerable and worked our way down the list. All of the 1B ultimately received a ticket, but it was the prioritization of those that were most vulnerable who also happened to be those that had the most socioeconomic disparity. And, and so it was very intentional and we would call them, we would send them text messages and emails, we let them schedule online, we had call centers calling them and, and the results um, held true. So at, at Parkland, uh, we had, of our vaccines we distributed, 49% went to Hispanic, 23% went to black, 18% to white. And when you compare that with the Dallas County race ethnicity makeup, it's very favorable. 40% of, of Dallas is Hispanic, we vaccinated 49%. You know, 23% is black, we vaccinated 23%. So uh, it, it was very useful. And then when we looked at um, looking at social determinants, uh, over 50% of patients who received vaccines lived within the highest um, socioeconomically uh, inequitable zip codes. And so uh, it was very fortuitous. We were very lucky and we were very happy with the results that it ended up being an equitable distribution. Well, and when you compare that with you know, what Dr. Miff was describing earlier about you know, people not having the same access to smartphones, for instance, or, yeah. and you think about the experience around the country and you'd hear about people you know, 
waiting up till midnight because that's when the the pharmacy's list refreshed and they could try to get an appointment, you know, first thing or doing that on you know behalf of their grandparents or something like that. This seems like not only a a better way to ensure equity, but also a better way to ensure um, um, how do I want to say it? Some rationality <laughs> to the process. Yeah. No, agreed. And Paul, I'll give you also one example, because I think we oftentimes learn from things that, um, you know, we look back and say, boy, you know, we could have done that better. But by, by actually um, using data daily and updating this, you actually have the opportunity to learn and adjust quickly. And Dr. Moran talked about sort of the 1B and sort of that, um, th that component of how things and the, I would say the upfront filters uh, that were coming as guidance um, from the federal, from the state governments of how you know prioritize. And one of those first groups was, you know, really good rationale um, when you look at it, it was that let's prioritize folks that were older over the age of 75 as the first, you know, category. Um, and then, you know, take that group and use the method that we said. But, you know, we quickly realized that applying that upfront filter, you automatically introduce an, an equality um, component to it. Because when, when we knew that the zip codes that Parkland serves, you know, you move a couple miles and the life expectancy drops by 15 years. So you had communities where the average life expectancy is 63. Well, you know, those also, in some cases, they're folks that needed it the most, but by, you know, applying well-intentioned, a filter that let's focus on the, those that uh, are the, you know, over the age of 75, you could automatically introduce something that's not favorable. So by, by tracking the data and looking at this every day, you can able to pivot really quickly. Uh, but again, I think it makes the point is, you know, you need to think from, you know, the first step all the way through and make sure that every step along the way, um, you know, and intentionally introduce something that, you know, could create uh, an inequity in the way you to approach. So I always like to wrap up these conversations by asking for something that people who are listening can do, you know, today uh, to, to advance equity and, and safety and recognizing they're not gonna be able to do everything all at once. Um, they need a starting point. And one of the things I particularly like that I think we can really learn from, from your experience is that while you certainly had an infrastructure in place to gather this data, you weren't looking for this data specifically, I'm gonna guess, you know, before, before the pandemic was, was on all of our minds. So you really were in some cases, you know, really starting up. But um, Dr. Moran, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. If, if another organization is looking to develop or assess, you know, their their community equity programs and, and how they interact um, at, with their community in this way. What's a good starting point? You know, Paul, I, th I think I would suggest start small. Uh, you know, one of the the mistakes that that I think I've made, and I think a lot of people make, is you try to swallow the whole elephant. And uh, you know, I would pick one, no more than three uh, areas that you want to focus on, and then do your equity spin, looking at real data, race, ethnicity, and language, and, and then try to, you know, for me, I find frequently the best way to move the needle is just to make the data available, not to make a, a metric out of it, not to make it punitive, just to make it available. And when people see it, they start changing practices. So a lot of the things that we described today, we actually, we had data points, we would show the proximity index, we put it in our EHR, which is a standard bread and butter EHR that many, many people use. And we put it in the, the schedule so you'd see it when the patient showed up, we put it in our 
alerts. Uh, we put it in our, uh, you know, all of our standard system list, our patient list. We made it easy to find this information so that it could be applied into the everyday because that's what you want them to do is to embed it into their everyday practice. And so take a few small metrics and then embed them and, and hopefully the needle will start to move. Dr. Miff, any thoughts from you? Yeah, well, Paul, um, to, to me, there, there, there are two key things. Um, one, leverage uh, the, the data that you have to its full extent because it, it's, we're not um, um, experiencing a lack of data. It's just we're experiencing a lack of practical application of the data. And what we've seen that you know, folks can start today on their journey is uh, take the information they already have on your patients from your electronic medical record and enrich it with the information that you already have about where they live. And it's a fairly straightforward process of geomapping your, your, your patients so you understand where they live and then attribute those factors um, that are in, in publicly available data and in a lot of cases, so you better understand the situations that, that, that they're living in. That provides you so much more perspective into what barriers they have to access the, your health system, whether it's physical access or whether it's digital access, as new organizations are starting to embark on that. So you can proactively address those because without them, we can create access points that might be inequitable or not everybody can, uh, can, can get to in a way that's convenient or accessible to them. Um, so that, that's, that's one. We have the information. It's just a matter of bringing it together. And the second one, and Dr. Moreno also alluded to, um, make it visible and accessible within where people already do their work. Don't expect them to create something great and then expect them to uh, go somewhere else to find it. If you're not teeing it up uh, exactly where they're already doing the work in a way that's easily uh, digestible, um, it's not going to have its biggest impact. So uh, small steps, but towards this goal of knowing your patients better and understanding them better leads rapidly to such great improvements anywhere from, from strategy, uh, from access, as well as to the frontline point of care interventions. Before we wrap up, is there anything that either, either one of you wanted to add before we, uh, before we wrap it up? Well, I think, Paul, I'll just, Steve alluded to kind of the next, you know, I, th I think some people may be saying, well, what, what do you do next? And, yeah. and for Parkland, we have, you know, beginning with using COVID predictions and uh, doing some of the modeling behaviors and things that led us to saying, what do, what do we do with big data? Can we get big data to help better inform us and tell us about who are our patients? And so, as Steve mentioned, we want to know who are they patients, um, what's important about our patients, and we know their medical problems. We know some of these things. We're starting to, to touch the surface of social determinants of health, but we're really not getting into the, the bigger, you know, there's a lot of environmental and social data on our patients that are outside of the EHR that we don't know about, um, but it is there and it is readily available information. And, and now that we all have complex health systems and big computer systems and data analysis, you can actually create an amalgam of that data to get you a better 3D picture of the patient and who they are. And those are some things we're working with Steve and his team on. Uh, we call it the Know Thy Patient Initiative and it's telling us more about who they are. Uh, because again, with health care, the outcomes, 80% of it is not related to the care they receive. It's related to the environment and the genetics and, and the habits. And we need to know more about that to, to reflect their care and provide equitable and, and good care for them. 
Dr. Moran, Dr. Miff, thank you so much for joining us. You can learn more about ECRI and the ISMP PSO from the ECRI website at www.ecri.org, where you'll find more conversations in this podcast series about racial and ethnic disparities in care. You can find more about Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation at pccinnovation.org and Parkland Medical Center at parklandhospital.com. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.